You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hello, everybody. This is Danny Anderson of the Sectarian Review Podcast, welcoming you to another episode of Christian Humanist Profiles this time. Uh, and today I have a, a longtime friend of the show, um, of my show, Jay Eldred. Uh, he's been on the Sectarian Review. He's been a great contributor for a long time. And Jay has uh, come up with his own book um, that I think will be of great interest to Christian Humanist Profiles listeners. Um, Jay his background is he has a, uh, a BA from Bob Jones University, and since then he's been a secondary educator focusing mainly on history, but also taking, taking some uh, chances to teach some upper-level science uh, classes and starting um, the school's cross-country team. While in college, he met his wife, Crystal, and it was her mom that introduced him to the subject of his book, Mr. Tom Poole, who is um, the subject and storyteller from Stories in the End. Short Letters from a Long Life. Um, Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing well. We just started our spring break, so I'm looking forward to taking a couple days off not thinking about school. I understand. <laughs> Summer is approaching, uh, but not never fast enough, right, uh, for those of us in higher ed especially, or in education in general. Uh, so, Jay, I wanted to just sort of, first of all, uh, thank you for giving me a chance to be an early reader of the book that you wrote uh in honor of your friend, uh, Tom Poole. And it was such a, a moving experience. And in conversation with Victoria Reynolds Farmer, the idea came to uh, came up to include you in uh, Christian Humanist Profiles. And so I think it's a really good idea. I'm very happy that you're here today. And so I just want to kind of um, start with the background of the book. This springs out of a, like an organic relationship that you have um, with a real man. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. Well, the subject is Tom Poole. And, you know, I know that right now that name means nothing to anyone, but I think most of us have someone in our lives, maybe it's a grandfather or an uncle or someone at work that just seems to always have a story about something and would talk about life, you know, what they did when they were younger or what they did before, you know, the, the uh, modern times, something like that. And so in getting to know Mr. Tom and hearing all of his stories, the thought kept occurring to me, you know, someone ought to write a book about this. Someone ought to write a book about this. And eventually my mother-in-law said, well, you keep saying someone should write a book. Maybe you're the one that should write it. And so that's kind of where the background for the book came from. Um, and this, these stories were stories that he told you over mm -hmm. time. Um, yep. and they were stories that he told over time. What? What I found out is that he didn't talk to many people about many things. And so I would be, you know, visiting with him. We might be watching a ball game or having lunch or something like that. And he might say, did I ever tell you about the time that and then who knows what would come out of his mouth next. <laughs> so you're in an honored position uh, to actually mm -hmm. witness history. And that's what uh, I think makes this book so notable is that this he's almost like a character out of a Mark Twain book. He, he mm -hmm. just sort of or almost like Forrest Gump in, in some way. He's just sort of there for so many uh, moments in history. And you are a historian. So in addition right. to the kind of personal relationship and the love I think that you have for this man, Man, there's also this real uh, kind of amazing access to a living historical document. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I think that does that somehow uh, speak to your interest in doing this? Oh, very much so. And very and, much so. And that's kind of what started the whole thing in the first place is that I was I did my senior thesis on the 1922 fire of New Bern, which ended up destroying most of of downtown and eventually led to actually one of the first planned communities for minorities in the United States. But someone told me that Mr. Tom had been here. And so I asked him if he remembered anything about it. And that's kind of what started his talking to me about all of the things that he'd done. And thus becoming a project in himself for you. Right. Um, and, and incidentally, New Bern is the same town that has just been uh, recently inflicted by that hurricane, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you want to tell a little bit about that? Well, um, I way to put me on the spot for that question, <laughs> but yeah, we were, we were in the news for hurricane Florence. It's pretty much where the, where it made landfall. 
Um, President Trump visited. In fact, one of my students got to meet him. Um, he was there volunteering, passing out meals. And as he puts it, all of a sudden, these men in suits came up and start asking people questions. And next things that he knows, the president of the United States is standing next to him. Mm. So, so that was an interesting, an interesting story to hear. Um, most, I don't want to say that we've recovered, but things are getting to be a new normal, if that makes sense. Like yeah. people are now getting they're beginning to uh, fix their houses. Money's finally coming through to do repairs, things like that. Um, I drove through my old neighborhood. I moved about a year ago. I moved, drove through my old neighborhood, which was heavily, heavily uh, flooded during that time. And houses were, are just now being torn down, not even fixed. So mm. there are still areas that are that are struggling. But overall, as a community, we've been coming together and lifting each other up. And that's been a blessing to see. And I ask because I, it just seems almost um, almost the. Uh, Oh, gosh, what's the word? It, it seems almost symmetrical that there is this basically 100 years um, between two destructions of the same town. And your subject of your book, Tom Poole, is kind of the bridge between those two um, those two events. And so he's very nearly. Yeah, he's such a, a receptacle of history, not just local, though, but uh, as we'll mm -hmm. find out here, American history. Um, and incidentally, uh, speaking of history, you have an appendix um, in this book. So in addition to the stories, which are, are told in kind of like first person style we'll get into the uh the the, the storytelling technique you employ here um later on but uh in addition to that uh narrative there's um uh, historical documents attached to this as well right um when i started writing the book i had thought it would just be for family that i might just type up and you know print out a few copies at staples and give to a few people that were interested but the more that i was writing and the more that i was talking to people about it i found that there was a like a wider yearning to have something like this to um you know uh not not necessarily verify the stories but you know more people wanted it than i had anticipated so mm -hmm. that's why i went ahead and actually made a book out of it. And what I found was, you know, no one is actually going to believe these stories. They're going to think that they're made up. So as best as I could, if I had documents or photographs, I included those um, kind of like as a scrapbook to, you know, kind of show, yes, this guy really did exist and he really did the things that he talked about. Yeah, there is a, I mean, like I said, almost a fictional quality to his life, uh, which is, is biographical. He, it, this very picaresque sort of um, adventure uh, that his whole mm -hmm. life seemed to have been. Um, and we can go into um, some of the details now, but um, but before we do that, the the book is framed uh, in a very interesting way as letters from Tom to um, someone who's known as B, and, and we'll find out later at the end of the book that B is actually his caretaker. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay. Um, so B is short for Barbara, and that's my mother-in-law. Uh, she got involved with Mr. Tom and his family in the early 2000s. She took care of his wife, Amber, who was suffering from um, probably Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And Mr. Tom didn't want to be apart from Amber, didn't want to put her in a nursing home, anything like that. You know, they'd been married since, oh, 1942, probably 1942. And so he wasn't about to put her in a nursing home or anything like that. And so to the best that he could, he kept her in the house. And that's where my mother-in-law came in taking care of her. When she passed in 2006, she continued coming over a few days a week, doing housekeeping for him and things like that. And then in 2011, as a result of yet another hurricane, Hurricane Isabel or Isabel, I forget which one it was, um, they ended up moving in on a more permanent basis, uh, taking care of the house and taking care of him so that he could stay in the house that he'd built with his own two hands. Mm -hmm. um, and um, then where that's so that's where B comes in, where the letters come in is that after he passed, I found out that he had left me the use of all of his papers and photographs and things like that, knowing that I would write a book about it. And he left behind a good um, 20 or so handwritten pages of notes and stories and things like that that were almost written 
not quite in letter form to me, but just enough that that's what gave me the idea to frame the story this way. Um, and so the epistolary method, I think, really works with the telling of the story. Um, honestly, I think it would um, it would not have worked as well have you had you told it in a more kind of distant historical removal form of, of storytelling, right? Um, right. And, and, and so that does bring up an interesting question about the authorship of this book. Um, you do publish it as a co-author with mm-hmm. you and Tom Poole. Uh, do you want to talk about like what parts are you <laughs> and what parts are him? Well, that's a good question. And in fact, one of the early reviews on Goodreads asked the same question, you know, where, where does one person end and the other begin? As far as what are his exact words, the whole um, section relating to Pearl Harbor are his words. Um, he didn't leave that for me. Those were actually put together from three or four different interviews that he'd given about Pearl Harbor back in the, um, I think it's like the 50s and the 80s and then in the 2000s. So I took like three different interviews that he'd done and put them all together. So they're all his words taken at three different times. Um, everything else is nearly mine. In other words, he might have only said something like, and this is, this is going to sound awful for someone who hasn't read the book, but he's, he'll say something like I shot Eddie. Mm-hmm. And then I would have to go back and figure out, okay, who is Eddie? What story is he talking about? And then try to talk to maybe some other f- friends of the family or to others that he would talk to, to put the whole story together. And then maybe that wasn't enough for a whole letter so then, okay, sitting sitting around the table talking to Mr. Tom, what did he talk about? What would have led him to talk about this story in the first place? And so that's kind of where the framing came in. It's very fascinating um, because it's blending a line between fiction and nonfiction, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, these stories are all definitely true stories, right? right. And you, that's another reason to have the, uh, the documentary evidence that you provide at the mm-hmm. end of the book, right? Um, but there's also a sense of invention that goes along with it because it is filtered through his experience. Right. So not only is he telling a story, you're sort of taking the stories that he told to kind of uh, organize it for a reader. And Mm so it it, it, honestly, it reminded me quite a bit of Philip Roth's semi sort of his attempt at an autobiography called the facts. Um, And by that point he had famously invented an avatar for himself, Nathan Zuckerman. And so um, who, People were always talking about whether that's really Philip Roth or not. Um, But he opens the facts with a letter to Nathan Zuckerman asking him to review this biography. And then that book ends with a letter from Zuckerman to Roth saying, you know, you're better off just writing fiction. Right. And so um, it's a a fascinating um, narrative tool. And the way that you kind of um, you're approaching that line in this book. And I I, I found it just to be fascinating. Um, So this is a work of history that also Mm -hmm. has some really, really great literary merit, I have to say. And so. So, well, thank you. Um, and so let me uh, let's get into some of the stories. Uh, there's any number of places we can begin. Um, this is just sort of a normal North Carolina boy um, mm-hmm. <laughs> who ends up uh, being swept up into history. There's some uh, remarks about how his his mother, the family story, at least. Um, goes that she was there for the the Wright brothers uh, flight. Um, mm-hmm. There was um, the story he told about going to the Chicago World's Fair and being around the corner when Dillinger was shot. And so there's yep. you've got this sort of um, almost mythological uh, uh, place in history uh, from this biographically true uh, person. And so um, do you want to talk about how you selected what stories to tell? leading up to um, the war stories, which I think are the kind of the heart of this book. Okay, well, I did try to put it almost in chronological order. I know that in some cases I didn't, but I tried to start out with, you know, almost how did he talk to me? How did he talk to other people? You know, when you're first getting to know someone, they don't tell you everything there is to know about them all at once. You know, they might tell you one thing here or there, and then as they get more comfortable with talking with you, then they'll open up and share more. And so that's kind of where I started with with this book, is that when you start out, yes, he's writing to the reader. He's assuming that the reader is a friend, but at the same time, he doesn't know the reader. Mm. And so he's only sharing a little bit. You know, he's just introducing himself and his family, where he's from, that kind of a thing. And then as you get further along, it gets more close and more personal. 
the, he expresses like a reticence um, to talk about his life at the beginning, right? And so mm-hmm. you, you do get the sense that you're sitting down at a fireplace with this with this guy, and and you're teasing this information out from him over an evening, right? Yep. Um, and, and, and and that's a lot of what it was. You know, you you just sat and you talked, and maybe he would tell a story, maybe not. But if you told one, you bet you better write it down. <laughs> The, the other thing was, is that over the 13 or so years that I knew him, he he never changed the story. Like every time that he told it, it was always the same way. It was always the same people, always the same facts and everything like that. So that was another thing going for it is that I didn't have to think, well, what version is the right one? It, because every time he told it and even when he wrote it down, it was always the same. And that seems of significant importance to a historian, right? Um, mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, lends some credibility to the stories. And, um, um, and in addition to the credibility, I mean, there are documentary, ev- there is documentary evidence that he was at the places he was claiming to be at. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, oh, um, yeah. so let's, let's kind of begin, I think, um, talking about Pearl Harbor. Uh, he was okay. in the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, right. Do you want to tell that story? Well, just a little bit of a background, you know, you, you introduced him as a normal North Carolina boy. And so I think like most people from small towns, they dream of something bigger or something larger. And so for him, that was joining the Navy. Mm. Um, I think, and you know, this is awful because I didn't do my research on this part, but I think at the time didn't, I think the Navy had a slogan, like join the Navy and see the world Mm. or something like that. And so he joined the Navy on his 18th birthday as he tells it. And so he turned 18, joined the Navy and left home. So he was at Pearl Harbor in 1938 or 1939. So he'd already been stationed there for several years before the attack. Mm -hmm. Um, And then go back a few pages, trying to find out. Okay. Yep. So, um, well, excuse me. So in the attack on Pearl Harbor, he was uh, stationed on the USS Raleigh as an engineer. So he was down in the lowest part of of the ship. And just to um, literally put a long story short, when general general quarters were sounded, he went from a dead sleep to the top deck to find out that we were being attacked by by Japan. And one of the ways that he always tells it on... um, December 7th, he would always tell us they flew so low that I could see the, the pilots in the plane and I shook my fist at them. Um, but one of those things that he says about Pearl, and this is coming from about the middle of his account about Pearl Harbor, he says, I'd, I'd wanted to make the Navy my career. Of course, Pearl Harbor kind of decided that for me. I think Pearl Harbor was like a bad dream. There was a lot of concussion and a lot of confusion people running here and people running there, bodies in the water and ships on fire. The Utah was tied next to us and had rolled over. I knew there were men trapped inside. We cut a hole in the battleship's hull with acetylene torches and found another survivor. I remember he fell right on his knees and thanked the Lord. And that was, I chose that for a couple of reasons. Number one, he often told that story about cutting out a survivor from the, from the Utah, but I had never actually seen it anywhere else. And then a few years ago, someone gave me a book about Pearl Harbor, and that author talks about men from the Raleigh cutting open the Utah. And then after, as I was finishing up this book, I had a colleague of mine go out to um, Pearl Harbor for a vacation. They went out to Hawaii. And when they came back, they told me, you know, there's the bookshop there and they're giving or they're displaying all of these books about Pearl Harbor survivors or written by Pearl Harbor survivors. You might want to check with them about getting your book there. And in talking with them, I found out that there's another book written by the man that they cut out of the Utah. So, again, backing up a story that I had never found credibility for. It's it's history and just sort of personal experience coming together mm-hmm. there. Um, and, and yeah, and it's, it's incredibly gripping, uh, the, the, the story he tells, but still told in an unornamented kind of plain spoken way. It's, it's entirely just descriptive, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, there's not like, it, it's not embellished with 
with any kind of like ornamental prose. And no. so, yeah. And so, which I also leads, lends some authenticity to the character himself. Mm-hmm. And I know some people might find that a bit off putting, you know, I, I know it's a horrible thing to read all of the reviews, but I know one person had commented, you know, well, there's not a lot of description. It's like, well, there's not a lot of description because that's really not the way people talk. Yeah. You know, I, the way that I wrote this was, you know, like you said earlier, you're sitting down, you're just having a conversation. And most of the time with the people that you're talking to, they're not going to go into great detail about descriptions. They're going to assume that you know what they're talking about, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's just getting to know someone. It, it is someone who's had access to a, a remarkable period in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in addition to uh, Pearl Harbor, he was also involved uh, with another significant <laughs> event in World War II, uh, D-Day, right? Okay, so we we skipped right to that one. <laughs> well, and, and I say skip because one thing that I found out after he died was that he was involved in liberating Casablanca. Okay, and so I didn't I didn't know that he never he never talked about it. Um, the closest that he came to talking about Casablanca was that he said there was one time that they were sent into battle and his captain had all the men pray for the men that they were about to about to attack and that he never forgot that. And that was all that he said. And I only put it together afterward when I was going through all of his military records, when it listed the Massachusetts as his most important, um, most important station. And I wondered why they listed the Massachusetts instead of um, the Raleigh for Pearl Harbor, as we'll get to in just a moment, the Meredith for D-Day. And so then in researching the history of the Massachusetts and what it did while he was stationed there, I was able to put together that he had been involved with liberating Casablanca. Mm. Uh, And that's the historian at work here, right? Um, Right. (laughs) Assisting the storyteller. Uh, And so that's great. Yeah. And it's the the book is chock full of those kinds of adventures, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He... if you've ever seen the movie Jaws, um, the character Quint has a really um, chilling story that's kind of the heart and soul of that movie um, about being on a boat that gets torpedoed and um, and he's among the people who are sort of waiting um, to be saved while sharks are, pick, are picking people mm-hmm. off. Um, there's a bit of a similar story that Tom tells. Uh, do you want right. to go into that? They were, as we as you said a few moments ago, he was involved in D-Day. And at that point, he was stationed on a ship, the Meredith, and they were doing support for the landing crews or something like that. I know that he said that he was involved in Operation Neptune, but I couldn't find a whole lot about that beyond the fact that it was providing support for the Normandy landings. And it was actually hit twice. Once it hit a mine, and then as they were being towed into port for repairs, they... um, they either either hit another mine. That's what he thought had happened. The official report is that um, the Germans dropped a torpedo on them or dropped a bomb on them, and it went right through the ship and exploded underneath them. Whatever happened, the ship ended up breaking in two. And again, as you had just mentioned, found themselves floating in the water. And he said that that literally was the worst night of his life, was the night that he spent floating in the English Channel with oil and fire and... I don't know if there were sharks or not, but definitely there were men literally drowning around him. And he tells the story of one man who was very badly burned that was trying to give him dog tags and rings to get back to his wife. The guy's buddies thought that Mr. Tom was robbing him and beat him off. And by the time they got the whole thing settled, the man had gone under and didn't come back up. That is like one of the moments in reading this that, I mean, you're sort of brought to tears, right? I mm-hmm. mean, um, um, just the thought of what was lost, you know, that, that last act of communicating to loved ones, um, was lost due to this, um, sort of tragic misunderstanding. Um, it's almost Shakespearean, um, if you will. And, and, and so, yeah, that's one of those human stories that make history kind of come not only just come alive, but take on actual like human meaning, right? Um, like, right. so we can read about, the date that this happened, but hearing the story from a person who was there and a story like that, particularly, I think has a real power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the the great 
um, accomplishments of, of this book. And, and, um, and let me repeat the name of it again for listeners. It's called Stories in the End, Short Letters from a Long Life. Um, and uh, not all of it is that heavy. Much of it is, is sort of more lighthearted and funny. There's little anecdotes about Bigfoot <laughs> and that sort of thing. Um, and, and so he, he's got this sort of like, uh, like charming storyteller um, aspect to him um, as well. But the moments, the, the war seems to be the kind of center of this story in some ways. And um, why do you think that is, I guess, beyond I, obvious reasons? I think it's the center of the story almost because it, it's the center of his life. If that makes sense, like every, like even just the way that he would talk about things when he talked, when he would talk to me about his childhood and things like that, there was always a sense of a sense of innocence, you might say, mm -hmm. or of naivete. But after the war, even the humorous stories always had a tinge of seriousness. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I that is actually true. Um, um, there's also, a, I think, an interesting. I guess I'm trying to frame this. For listeners of this podcast, uh, there'll be people of faith, largely, right? And so mm -hmm. um, that's something we should talk about. And so I think that seriousness might come from this very subtle but um, powerful faith that grounds the man. Um, mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Um, so in among all of the documents and the and mainly photographs that Mr. Tom left for me, there was a bulletin from one of the ships that he had served on um, as he was coming back to the U.S. after World War II is over. As he puts it, he took the long way home. It took him over a year to get from Japan back to the U.S. Mm. And so almost a year to the day that World War II ended, it was a Sunday, and he kept the bulletin for that church service. Um, it's generally unremarkable. You know, it's what you would expect. It's, it's a church bulletin, but what made it more, what made it special to me was, uh, was what he wrote on the back was something along the lines of there were five men saved today and you would have been proud of me. I knew all the songs yeah. or something like that. And that was sent to his wife, Amber, who kept almost everything that Mr. Tom ever sent to her while he was, while he was away. And I think that it was kept one for one reason, you know, it was something that he sent her. But for another, I'm not exactly sure when he became a Christian. I, I know that I talked to him about it several times, but he never actually told me like a testimony or how he came to know how he came to be a Christian. But he did say that during the war, he was not that he didn't have anything to do with God at all during the war. And so it was sometime after the war that he that he became a Christian. And so I think that was another reason why he saved that bulletin, because perhaps it was the Lord working in his heart even then. I'm not exactly sure. The the message that he writes um, is really interesting. There's two lines. Three new men confess Christ this day and join the church. So you see God is everywhere. And mm -hmm. so it's almost like the the encounter with god has begun maybe in that year <laughs> between the maybe. end of the war right um mm -hmm. on the on the trip back um and he's like publicizing to his to his bride that that he's taking it seriously right right um and then particularly the second one you should have heard me sing as you can see i knew all these songs except the last one um mm -hmm. and so um and so he's like kind of proud of his his uh knowledge of, of the faith at this point right so you can uh -huh. almost this is almost like a document of his um, initiation uh, into Christianity um, as much as anything else, um, as well as like a document of the end of the war for him, right? Right. And, and I think that those two things are probably, um, uh, they go hand in hand uh, in a lot of ways. Um, Definitely. The one thing I have to find, just uh, I find kind of funny, um, having grown up in small churches and church bulletins are kind of 
a cultural institution of their own. Um, mm-hmm. and, and reading this one, I, I spent a lot of time just kind of reading this one. There's a poem uh, established or in the middle of the bulletin called Life to the Preacher. Life's a sermon to the Joker. Life suggests and to all these types of people, life is something that. And then at the end, life is what we try to make it. Brother, what is life to you? Right. And so um, it's a really interesting, um, silly kind of banal poem but in the context of this story i think it takes on really profound meaning i I don't know if you have any thoughts on that i i actually hadn't thought of that because i thought the same way as you had no it's i don't know it's filler almost yes but but i would have to go back and i you know I imagine I would have certain of my professors shaking their head at me for not put, for not for not putting it in the context of a soldier returning from war and what it would have meant to them. Well, and, and in many ways, we're seeing um, Tom live a number of lives. I mean, he lived seven lifetimes of worth of life, basically. Really. Um, and so, all of these types of people, you know, find a different kind of meaning in life, right? And, and I think mm-hmm. that. You can almost see this as a metaphorical kind of expression of the story you're in the middle of reading at this point um, um, about his life and what he's, how he's experiencing it at each given turn. And so I, I thought you had put that in there on purpose um, because I found it to be a really a beautiful fit. I mean, uh, for uh, for the overall theme of the book in a lot of ways. Well- I put it in there on purpose only to the extent that it was part of the bulletin. It was a document. Um, I, I would I would love to take further credit for it, but I can't. And, uh, and it could be also that I read this in an early version when this bulletin was put into the middle of the story. And I think you've subsequently moved it to the end uh, for the final version. Is that what is that, am I understanding it correctly? Well, I'm, I'm looking at it now and I do have the text I do have the text in the letter where where you where you originally okay. saw it, and then I have the scans of the original in the back. I see. Okay. Okay. I remember that. So I think it's a uh, it's a beautiful marker um, between one life and another. And I guess I just wanted to use it as a transition into mm-hmm. his his civilian life. Um, I think that right. that is um, every bit as gripping and remarkable as these war story adventures mm-hmm. that really could be out of a Hitchcock film from the, I mean, Hitchcock did these world war two movies, right? Um, um, his life could have been one of those movies during the really? war. Um, and, but then after, after the war, his life is no less interesting. And I, I want, uh, do you have any like particular aspects of his post-war life that you want to kind of highlight here for our listeners? Well, I would say, you know, to go on from our previous, our previous, uh, conversation was that after the war, everything that he does has an undertone of seriousness to it and of, for lack of a better term, a a focus on Christian values that weren't really there before the war. And I know that even at the war, you know, he joined the Navy when he was 18. You know, how much could he have done before he was 18? Well, the answer would be he did a lot before he was 18. (laughs) But um, it's there's definitely a change. So though I don't necessarily have a personal testimony from him about how he became a Christian. It's evident that he lived a life that was Christ-like, you know, focusing on providing for a family, focusing on love, focusing on helping the church, focusing on pretty much anyone who would need it. Um, The verse comes to mind uh, from the, I think it's the Sermon on the Mount, when Christ calls us to be salt and light. And I can think of no better description for the life that he led would be salt and light just by being around him you left a better person mm-hmm. um and he was still an ambassador for the military though yep. um, um so it wasn't like he entirely left the military he became a recruiter i do believe right? yeah he he was he eventually did make the navy his career he put in his full 20 or, or so years of service and so after active duty he was a recruiter in eastern north carolina the same area where he grew up and um in one of the in one of the in one of the letters, I mentioned how he was uh, a recruiter for a short time in Kinston. One of the things that I got after his death is an old brass spittoon from the recruiter's office in Kinston, North Carolina. So that was just 
something interesting. Verisimilitude there. That's great. Yeah. Um, um, and the uh, other uh, thing that I think is interesting here is that he's also a trapper. Um, yeah. <laughs> and sort of a uh, an authority on trapping as well. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, after the after the war, after he was and after he did uh, did his military service, he did work as a civilian contractor for the military, doing almost the same job he had while he was in the military. But he also began to focus on the outdoors. And he was the kind of person that never let anything go to waste. So everything that he trapped or killed, he used every part of it that he could. For example, um, he was he would be known to buy a plot of land hunt or trap whatever he could on the land, cut the trees down for timber, sell the timber, build a spec house, and then sell the spec house with the land. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that he did. But just a few interesting anecdotes from, from his trapping life. It's in, it's interesting with, uh, with his relationship with the Japanese. He never quite forgave the Japanese for what they did at Pearl Harbor and who, and who could necessarily blame him for that. But at the same time, he was more than happy to take their money. One of the things that he did was he would trap eels along the river and would sell them to the Japanese for something like three or four dollars an eel. Mm. And this is back in the 60s or 70s. That's no small change. Yeah. Um, and so he would he'd been told that he would sell them to the Japanese. And within a day or within 36 hours, they would be back in Japan or at least on the way to Japan on ice being for their markets. Um, yeah, so he's a savvy businessman, right? Oh yeah. Um, um, and and it seems to be, um, it, that's not necessarily something you would expect uh, a war hero to uh, to end up in no. in that life, right? So well, he, go ahead. Well, not even just that, but he didn't have, and not, and this isn't disparaging anyone, but he didn't really even have a college education. I mean, well, he didn't have a college education. He barely had a high school education. Um, like I said before, when he turned 18, he he joined the Navy. That meant he dropped out of high school and never finished high school. Mm. And he didn't actually complete the courses or get get a, an official high school diploma till almost when he retired from the retired from the Navy. I think he retired from the Navy in 1958 and he got his high school diploma in 1956. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a uh, um, almost unimaginable life uh, for us today, right? And when we think right. about like career opportunities for people, and um, and, and like he's a, an artifact from another time, um, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, one thing before, as we you know gesture towards the end, I want to talk. I mean, you can't talk about him without talking about his wife, um, right? And his marriage is actually uh, it's really beautiful and and really kind of. Um, accidental in some ways, but also, uh, <laughs> long lasting and, uh, and, and very, um, profound and, and it, and his wife's ultimate death has like a real, like super, um, heavy meaning for him. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about, um, his relationship with his wife? Well, again, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but that you, if you, you should get the book and read about how they ended up married. But as he says, when they were married, they were never apart again, aside from the time that the Navy kept them apart. So they were married for over, I want to say over 60 years. I'd have to do the math on that. I know for a fact over 50 years. And she she was a, I, I guess I'd call it a pioneer in her own right. You know, she's living in in North Carolina in the 1950s and 1960s, and yet she has a career. She teaches art and she teaches ceramics. She works for the local community college when when the community college opens up doing the same things. She has she had her own kiln and her own little business doing doing paintings and ceramics and things like that. Um, They love from what I understand, they loved, loved, loved to pick on each other. (laughs) And there's multiple stories in there about all the different ways that they would tease each other and things like that. Um, I never knew Miss Amber apart from her being sick, you know, um, after the dementia had started to set in. But even then, she loved, loved, loved to pick on to pick on Mr. Tom. I remember one time we were over there visiting and we were having lunch or whatever. And, you know, 
she never really spoke to me. She, by that point, she'd lost most of her ability to speak, but she motioned for me. She wanted me to come over and look at a picture and she had out some of the old scrapbooks. And there was this one particular picture of Mr. Tom in a very, very short bathing suit and no shirt. And she just taps that picture and gets the biggest grin on her face <laughs> and gives like a knowing wink to me. And I'm like, okay, Miss Amber, I understand. <laughs> that's, that is, that's really sweet. Um, and, and actually, you know, for the context of the book, uh, I mean, his wife's you know, eventual illness and death is a significant um, moment in the the continuation of his story, right? Because right. Um, Barbara then comes into the um, the the B who these letters are addressed to mm-hmm. uh, comes into the picture to take care of her and eventually him, I do believe, right? And yes. so, um, and that's also your connection into this story. Right. And so, do you want to kind of fill in the gaps there? Sure. Um, sometime in the early two thousands, Miss Amber st- uh, started to have problems with with her with her mind. You know, um, I and again, I'm not sure which what kind of dementia she had, but it, she lost her memory loss and things like that and just could not necessarily function on her own. Well, again, Mr. Tom being who he was, did not want to put her in a home or anything like that. And so asked my mother-in-law or actually asked the pastor of the church, if he knew anyone that could come and help take care of her so that she didn't have to go to a home or go to a facility. And he put, put him in contact with my mother. Well, At the time, she wasn't my mother-in-law, but put her in contact with my mother-in-law. And so she came in, took care of her for several years until she passed away. And then when she passed away, Mr. Tom said, well, would you mind coming over a few days a week to clean house for me? You know, pretty much do the things that you've already been doing. And so she did that for the next four or five years until 2011, when we had another hurricane come through um, New Bern and Mr. Tom's house, though it was on the river, was one of the higher elevations. And so we'd go to his house when a hurricane came through. We ended up being there for close to a week, two weeks. And then he didn't want my in-laws to leave and just asked if they would kind of move in and be permanent caretakers for him so that he could stay in the house. And they did. Um, And that's how you were introduced to him. And that's how I was introduced to him. Um, My wife and I started dating in 2000 and and so it would have been 2005 or 2006 probably 2005 that I first came to New Bern and you know being a history major they said oh well you really need to meet Mr. Tom (laughs) and so I went over and I met Mr. Tom and that was the beginning of a very long and very very uh profitable friendship and and he just with just recently passed, um, right. He right. passed away in 2017. Yeah. And I, and I, that had to have been, um, extremely hard for you. Um, uh, cause you had developed an actual friendship with him. Oh yeah. And, and so, um, do you want to talk a little bit about like his, his meaning for you, uh, in your life, I guess. I, I will do my best. I don't know that anything that I could say would, would do him justice, but I think that I think that every maybe once in a lifetime, you might find one person who is a genuine, true friend that literally does not think ill of anyone on the earth. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And just opens up to you in a way that nobody else does. And for me, that was that was Mr. Tom. Um, I found out after the fact that I was the only one that he would really talk about the war with. There were stories that he told me that he didn't tell his family. There were stories that he told me that he didn't tell my mother-in-law. There were some things that only I knew, and it was only when I went to write them down that they, and I had some others read the book, you know, to find out, you know, is this right? Is this not? And they said, we've never heard this story before. Mm. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, now I got now I really lost lost track. Um in terms of it being difficult, it was difficult, but it wasn't necessarily unexpected, if I can put it that way. Um just different things had been happening over over the course of several months that though it was hard it we though it was hard, we were prepared for it. And so. and it's a full life. I mean if, Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> you couldn't ask more from life than than what he no. got out of it, right? And no. so and the, and and that's what he often said to us. 
is that what, you know, one of his favorite sayings is what, what more could I ask for? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, so to kind of get to the end of this, um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, the, the value, I mean, this is the Christian humanist radio network, right? Right. So, um, I think there is a real value in doing work like this, um, from that perspective. And I just want to kind of point to, um, one potential value. And I want you to elaborate maybe on why more people might think about doing this, um, this kind of activity here. You open with a couple of, um, epigraphs, one from Cicero to be ignorant of what occurred before you is to remain always a child for what is the worth of human life unless it is woven unless it is woven into the life of our ancestors by the records of history. So uh, I actually cut that one. Oh, you did. (laughs) I did. Well, it worked. I just thought it was too wordy. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, but it does, I think, speak to one of the values um, that drove this book's creation. Um, uh, I apologize uh, for those of you who won't get to read it. Just imagine that it was there when you buy the book. Um, But uh, because it does, I think, um, speak to the fact that there is... Um, for us as a, a you know, for the, the, the latest generation to truly kind of grow up and take our own kind of roles as leadership in the world, um, looking back to the wisdom of the past is a, is a value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's part of what this activity was for you. Um, oh, yes. What else is behind? I mean, what else is good about doing work like this? Well, in this specific instance, I would have to argue that Often on the on the Christian Humanist Network, we talk about what it means to live a good life, mm-hmm. and I would argue that Mr. Tom led a good led a good life. So it's not necessarily looking at it from a philosophical or a theological standpoint and thinking about it uh, cerebrally, but it's looking at it in the practical. Is a that model makes sense, it's, right? Yeah, like we can talk about it, but here's someone who came close to living it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also in terms of, of, um, just simply preserving the past, you know, there, we place a great deal of importance on tradition. And so I think that we all have, like I said, we all have those friends or families that tell stories, write them down. Don't let, don't let them end or let them die just with that person. It is, um, I think a, a lost art. <laughs> I mean, I think it's basically, it's the family Bible on some level, right. right? You keep this Bible over generations so that later people remember that they have a context, right? And, and they mm-hmm. come from something. Um, and hopefully they, they've learned from the, from the good and the bad of that past, right? Um, right. And I think doing work like this is a way of connecting the past to the present and aiming it at the future. Uh, and and, I, and I, I totally um, found it to be really moving. I found Tom to be very charming uh, and very wise. I was a little annoyed that you didn't name the book Tom Poolery because um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a super sucker for puns. But um, so it's probably good that you didn't do it. But um, but yeah, but I do think that um, he is just sort of the, a classic uh, American character right and, and, and right. learning from him um, and preserving those stories is, is a great service thank you um, so this book um, again the name of stories in the end short letters from a long life by Jay Eldred and Tom Poole um, is available on Amazon right now do you want to mm-hmm. talk, you want to talk to people how they can uh, help support the book and, and Goodreads and all that kind of stuff okay <laughs> uh, right right now there is just a paperback available. Once the once the school year ends, I may reformat it and make it available for ebook. But for right now, if you go to Amazon and search for Stories in the End, or even just Jay Eldred, um, it's been up for enough time for enough time, and apparently enough people have searched for it that I'm one of the top search results. Either that, or I just have a unique name. <laughs> whichever way, whichever way that works. And so you can buy it from Amazon right now. And then if you buy it and if you read it, um, do leave a review on Amazon if you're able. I know Amazon a couple years ago changed their model that you've got to spend a certain amount of money a year in order to leave a review. So if you can leave a review on Amazon, please do so. And then if you um, can leave a review on Goodreads, do so as well. And if you read it and you want to pass it on, pass it on to someone else. Um, I'm all for that. 
The book is also, you uh, mentioned to me that it's uh, you're in conversation with various institutions that are interested um, in, in the book. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Okay. Um, so you make it sound a lot cooler than it actually is. I don't think so. um, okay. <laughs> All that it is, is that, um, so there is a organization here in New Bern. That's where I live. It's where Mr. Tom lived for most of his life. And they put on a Pearl Harbor remembrance service every year. And for many years, Mr. Tom was an honored guest at that service, you know, being a Pearl Harbor survivor. And so this year, my mother-in-law and I are working with them to be part of their service this year. And I will be, Lord willing and fingers crossed, hopefully um, giving a copy of this book for the local um, local history room or local history library that they have going on there. Um, then one of the other places that I'm talking with about possibly getting my book in is the, afore, we talked about it a few minutes ago, the um, gift shop out at Pearl Harbor with that displays the books that were written about or by the survivors of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, his life is bigger than that, but oh, yeah. those are definitely um, some of the highlights of that life and just um, experiencing those events um, through these very human eyes um, is just is, is incredibly moving. Jay, I really um, enjoyed reading it, and I, I recommend everyone else um, take a take a look at it and uh, and and just step into uh, step into the life of Tom Poole uh, for about an hour, and uh, and you will uh, you will totally um, fall in love with the man as as Jay did himself. So, um, Jay, any any kind of final thoughts? I think that I already gave them. Um, I would encourage you all to, you know, if you if you have these family stories or you have something like that, write them down so that they don't get lost when the older generation is off the scene. Um, well said, and and I couldn't concur more. Um, we all need to um, um, pay attention to our loved ones while they're still here, right? And I think that that is a uh, um, a value that we could all do do a little better at doing. And this book helps help us encourage do is help us helps encourage us to do that. Excuse me. Um, well, Jay Eldred, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks for uh, writing the book. Um, um, thanks for uh, all the people that helped help. Thanks to all the people that helped you do so. Um, and if you are listening, please uh, contact the show at christianhumanist.org. You can find uh, links to everything that goes on at the uh, the Christian Humanist Network and uh, and by all means contact uh, the the folks who run the show and uh, give them some uh, feedback about what you hear. Uh, for Jay Eldred, I am Danny Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>